Are you happy? Are you deep down satisfied with the person you are, how you're living your life, and the future as it appears today? Do you have a passion? Is there any one thing in your life that is so important that it makes prioritizing everything else simple? If the answer to any of those questions is no, do you have any idea why? Welcome to the Vera Moore Speaks podcast. I'm your host, Dawn Keegan, co-founder of the dating app Veramore and the nonprofit app Hero Harbor. Happiness, mine and that of others, is something that's always been very important to me. I've devoted my life to understanding how we take the things life throws at us and combine that with our own special gifts to come away with an experience that, while not always perfect, is one we are proud of and allows us the fewest regrets and least amount of heartache. Whether through my personal musings or conversations with guests, the aim here is not to find a one-size-fits-all to-do list of change, but instead a mindset that lessens our fear, reduces judgment of ourselves and others, and frees each individual to build the life that truly represents happiness for them. Thank you for joining us on the Veramore Speaks podcast. I've always worked to provide the most honest, helpful content I could in forms that reach the largest possible audience. And my extreme dislike of greed-driven organizations means I do so without ads or sponsors. But for us to continue improving with better guests and more consistent production quality, we need your help. If you have found any value in what we do and the content provided, Please show us a little love by making a contribution directly to the podcast or as a tax-deductible donation on the HeroHarbor.org website. Thank you again for listening, and please enjoy the show. Out of suffering have emerged the strongest souls. Guarding the radar sets, but we were riding on the flatbed. Luckily, it was not long a trip, but uh, that's what we did. So we would stop periodically and switch. You know, we'd go into the sit in the in the uh, car, and the other guys would excuse me would ride on the flatbed. You want to get some water? Huh? So, you want some water or something? Yeah. So anyway, so we got to uh, uh, Camp Lejeune, and then we uh, ended up on, uh, uh, got on a troop train and went across the country to uh, San Diego and joined the 12th Defense Battalion, which was forming then, and uh, I went overseas uh, with them two years, but uh, as I say, I ended up with the radar sets I had. But uh, things, you know, the war, in those days it was, uh, the equipment was very primitive, of course. 
we didn't have proximity shells. I had read after the war that for every German plane shot down in the Battle of Britain, it took 21,000 rounds. And it was the same way with us. We, the radar set was in, in the middle and we had three batteries of 90 mm. And the decibel level of the single shell was 145 decibels. And so we fired, and we didn't have uh, IFF, which was identification friend of foe. So any plane that was picked up on the radar was assumed to be uh, a bogey. I can remember one night on Woodlike Island looking up, and I these searchlights caught the plane. And I could see the skull and crossbones, which was the mark of uh, the 5th Air Force from New Guinea flying over. <laughs> and, you know, shells were bursting all around the poor sucker. He must have scared the hell out of him. But somebody, somebody says, hey, 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 that's what it was. So, but uh, we would fire shell after shell, you know. And uh, it wasn't until 1944 because this was in 43 and 42. In 1944, the proximity shell was invented, which was like a small radar in the shell, and it was designed to explode within 70 foot, I think, of a target. But the, before that, you know, it was just guessing. You could pick up where it was, but um, had a 30-second fuse on it, so they would and those guys, you know, were trying to comp fire as many shells as they could, so got three batteries going, and uh, all that noise, about 20 minutes after it was over, you, you just saw it. But anyway, Jane and I corresponded, and uh, I forget what I said, I forget what I was making those days, I think, I want to say it was $50 a month, but there was no way it, you could spend money. I mean, there's nothing, you know, if you're in Honolulu, you know, everybody's getting that tattoo or something, uh, doing other things that they shouldn't, but, but when you're down the islands, you're in Australia for a little while, uh, but there was no, well, even in Honolulu, we, uh, we were allowed four hours of liberty on a Thursday. There were so many troops and ships in there and everything that the liberty was limited. So, you know, what pictures I had were pictures taken at the zoo or something like that, inventing the camera or something. But, so, they gave us the, uh, and not too many guys were married in those days. It, Marines discouraged marriage. Uh, you know, it gave rise to that thing. If the Marines wanted you to be married, they would have issued you a wife. But uh, I, I told Jane I would send her. Um, I forget what it was. It must have been. It had to be most of the money because I I did have some money when I came home and which I drew in San Francisco, Alameda, California. But anyway, 
as, as I told you, it was 700, something like 700 bucks. So anyway, I get, get home, I get to Honolulu in June. Uh, the Peleliu landing was on September 15, 1944. In June 1944, we had come off the Cape Gloucester landing, which was on Christmas Day, 1943. The Japanese never expected the Marines to land um, on, you know, Christmas uh, holiday. So uh, we didn't get too much op um, opposition until we got a little bit further inland. Uh, I remember. Uh, we set up, set up the. We had another radar called uh, 270, which was a long. It had a range of 120 miles. We were setting that one up uh, on a hill by a mountain called Mount Tallaway. And the perimeter was uh, right at the airstrip. We were set up on the, actually where the Japanese were, and why we never got. It zapped off, I'll never know. But anyway, um, we came off, landed there in December, uh, Christmas, and then in May, we went to uh, Russell Islands for, to prepare for the, we didn't know it at the time, prepare for the uh, uh, Peleliu landing. In June, uh, headquarters sent uh, four uh, people out, they were all staff sergeants, I remember, to interview us to see what we did in civilian life. I remember the guy that was on the Lister bag purifying the water had been an airline pilot and they had him working as a PFC on <laughs> putting the pills in, in the water. He got sent home right away. I got interviewed. And they asked me what I did, and I told them I worked for Ma Bell. I said, oh, you, you belong in telephone school, so we're going to send you back to telephone school. So uh, I thought, gosh, boy, I'm all set now, I'm, you know, I'm going to go home. Well, they didn't get send me home until January. <laughs> I went to the Pelotu landing, and then... But anyway, I get home and I stop at uh, Lewisburg, Pennsylvania, pick up Jane. We're going to get married. And um, I said to her, Well, I guess um, she was going to go to her parents' home in East Orange, New Jersey. And I had another uh, half brother by the name of Charlie who was in Fanwood, New Jersey, which is maybe about 30 miles or 40, yeah, about 30 miles from East Orange, but it was south of where she was going. But I was going to go to Charlie's house. She was going to go home, and then we were going to hook up and get married. So uh, I said to her, well, you've got, uh, what do you have, about $700? And uh, she started laughing. She says, I'm wearing it. <clears throat> And she had this fur coat on. I said, what'd you do? She said, I bought this coat. I said, what? And then she 
said, uh, well, it gets cold here in Pennsylvania. He said, what are you going to do, freeze to death? So I started laughing. I said, that's not what I said. That's the damnest thing I've ever heard in my life, you know? I started laughing. And she said, yeah, I knew you'd, I knew you'd get a joke, a kick out of it or something like that. So I said, well, we didn't need all that money anyway. We can just go through justice and peace. <clears throat> Uh, and he's starting to get married. So I go to Uncle Charlie's house and uh, unannounced, I knock on the door. He had married a, um, a woman of an Italian descent who, in those days, uh, a lot of the um, work or the stores or the Merchants uh, were in ethnic neighborhoods, so Fulton Fish Market had a lot of Italian people there. And the room in the family was that Uncle Charlie's business, which was in the Fulton Fish Market, uh, was a function of him marrying Aunt Edith, who had to be Italian, and she had relatives in the mafia. <laughs> but who knows? But anyway, Aunt Edith was a very religious woman. They had a son, and um, the only child they had. And I remember he was about six foot five. He was a big kid. Uh, He's about my age, but uh, he was in the army. He was a paratrooper in the Pacific, and I knew they were in New, in Lay, New Guinea. They made one jump during the war, yeah. and they were still there, I know, when, uh, I don't even think they went to the Philippines, but anyway, they didn't know where he was, and, and Edith uh, had a shrine in his room where she had a candle, she put a new candle up every so often. And she had a statue of the, of the Blessed Mother and um, Holy Family there. And she was constantly, uh, I'm sure, praying for his safe return. So I knock on the door. She comes to the door. And here I've grown some. I'm no longer 120 pounds. I'm 145. I got a two-year South Pacific tan with a nice blonde crew cut and she stares at me and said Fick is that you and she said you you've been gone for what I said well it's I said yeah it was overseas 20 25 months I said now you know 27 months since you last saw me and she says, you didn't get hurt? I said, no. So she said, you don't have a scratch on you? I said, no. <laughs> so she took that as a sign that Diddy was going to come back home. All right, so they put me up in Diddy's, Diddy's room. And then when Uncle Charlie came came home, they were, they were just... Uh, Absolutely thrilled. It was like, um, 
you know, like she had received a, a message from uh, God that uh, that it was going to be all right. She, says, she said, we don't know where he is. I said, well, I know where he is. He's in Lay New Guinea. They did make one jump there behind, they were trying to isolate, you know, they had this island hopping and, and MacArthur would uh, bypass Japanese strongholds and let them wither on the vine or starve to death. And, but, um, so, oh, gee, they were thrilled. So they asked me what my plans were, and I said that uh, we were going, we were going to, I don't know what I told them about the fur coat or not, but I told them we were going to get married by the Justice of the Peace. And so we were, we're planning we're getting married in, in the church, but we funds aren't there or something. So Uncle Charlie stepped up to the bat and said, no, you're getting married in a church and you're going to go on a honeymoon in the Pocono Mountains. I have a reception and uh, I'm going to take care of it all. And he did. So that's how uh, it's done. Yeah. <laughs> she got her fur coat and her wedding. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for us. But uh, yeah, so... That worked out absolutely uh, fine, but then, <laughs> so I get uh, we get married and we come down south here, and Marines had housing; they had trailers for married Marines. However, those of us that signed up for the duration plus six months were not classified as regular Marines. We were classified as duration Marines. So I couldn't get a uh, housing. Guys I knew uh, that had signed up for the four years, they had no problem. So uh, we found a room in Kinston, North Carolina but Jane only stayed there a few months because we ran out of money. She, I'd gotten a job in W.T. Grant's five and ten cent store, and the guy said he had a hold back, um, I think three weeks' pay before she could get, um, you know, get her pay. He never did pay her, so she had to go back and got a job with Congolium Nan in um, Carney, New Jersey and lived with her parents. Her father never attended the wedding. Her father wanted to stay in, in Bucknell and he didn't think I'd ever, um, you know, amount to anything. And so uh, I remember her boss didn't either. He was trying to find out what I did and she said, well, he, you know, worked in a factory or something. He said, well, he's one of those Just Plain Bills. There used to be a song called Just Plain Bill. You know, even though he's worthless, I still love him or something. The lyrics come. <laughs> anyway, so we're, we're down in, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm taking a bus, which cost me, I think, five bucks to get from June to uh, so we run out of money before uh, too long and so she had to go back and go to work so I didn't realize it uh, that the war in Europe was winding down 
and they didn't need any telephone operators, so they closed the telephone school. And so I'm going into a replacement battalion to go back overseas because I'm prepared to invade uh, Japan. And uh, just so happens is the day my paperwork is going through the first sergeant's office, his clerk typist uh, is sick. And the first sergeant has to have a muster roll by 8.30 the next morning. And we didn't have computers in those days, but we classified paper, uh, people on a 8 by 10 cardboard form. And what they did is they had holes punched in different occupations. If you're a car mechanic, uh, where that hole is, they'd have a V cut. So you could take an ice pick and go through a whole bunch of cards, and the ones that dropped down indicated that they, those are the ones that could do. So he puts the ice pick through the cards to those they can type, and my card drops down. So he calls me in and he says, uh, listen, he starts explaining to me what a must roll is and what's on there, you know, date of birth, occupation, enlistment date, and uh, all this stuff. And uh, he says it's on a continuous rolls of, of paper, I think, and them six sheets, I think, attached together. He said there can be no errors. We didn't they didn't have correction fluids or something, I don't know. He said it had to be microfilm. And he said he needed by, and he had this whole big raft of, of records that had me typed. And he said he needed by eight to the next month. I said I haven't typed in, what, almost four years now. I said, I don't, I don't think, I really don't think I can do it. He said, well, there's another guy that can type. He said, his name is, you know, he said, your, your first name is, you know, B came out first, but he said, I've got this other guy. He said, maybe between the two of you can get it done. I kept in touch with that kid. He was from Red Wing, Minnesota, became a psychiatrist after World War II. We kept in touch for a while. But anyway, he says, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. He says, if you guys get that type for me by 8.30 tomorrow morning, he said, I'm going to give you a plank. And he said, I'll keep you in my office as long as I can. And you won't have to, you won't be going in placement now. You didn't go back out and back out again. So, uh, he said, I've got the mess hall bringing over coffee for you um, four times during the night or something. I don't know. I know about every couple of hours that some guy, a mess sergeant or somebody, come with a big pot of coffee and all this stuff. So, anyway, <laughs> he said, no mistake. Make a mistake, you got to start over again. Well, the next morning, we had a damn pile of paper this high that we 
<laughs> but we got the thing done. And so he said, uh, go get some sleep. Go to the mess hall. He said, they'll feed you. Uh, go to the mess hall and don't, you don't have to worry about you know, being late or early. Anytime you're hungry, go to the mess hall. And those guys are aligned up to take care of you. And uh, he said, uh, and I'll see you in a couple of days. And he said, but you're going to be working for me. So the next thing I know, I get notice from Jane that she's pregnant. And they dropped a bomb. And uh, then we get the, the uh, notice that everybody that's got 60 points, uh, oh, six, more than 60 points, uh, for eligible for who we, who we uh, discharge. I had over 70. I think the point system was one point for each each month in, in, in the service. I don't know, it was two or something for each month overseas, and I think five for each month, each combat, and something. So, but anyway, I had more points in need. They also get the notice that anybody that can type is, is frozen because they need them to type the discharges. So, oh, Oh, every day I'm going to the fish. I get this letter from Jane. I don't know how much longer I can work, you know. It's getting embarrassing or something. I don't know. So every day I go to the fish. So I said, listen, I got to get the hell out of here. I got to. I, I just got to. I got to go home and go to work. I got, you know, my wife's pregnant now. So one day I go to them and I got the same story. I said, listen. When you were in trouble, you know, uh, you know, I took care of, I, now I'm in trouble. I know that, I know that. I'm, so one day I go there and I got my story, you know, again and again. He says, hold it. He says, my drinking buddy has been, just been transferred over to the, they call it the reclamation battalion. He spent a week there, and before they let you go, to uh, you know, calm you down and get you ready to go back and survive. <laughs> he says he's just been put in charge of that. I said, wait a minute. So he picks up the phone, and I forget what the guy's name was, Joe or something. He said, hey Joe. He says I need you to do something to me. He says I. I want you to sneak a guy through for me. Through. That's exactly what he said. I want him to sneak through. He says, do you think of having to? He said, good, good. He'll be over there tomorrow morning. So I get over there and I watch the movies. I'm hanging up your shoes and for movies and talks for about five days. and. And I get my got my sea bag and and get a ride out to the main gate and uh, wait for a, 
a truck to Dickerson, got $69.74 or something, four cents a mile to make it back to East Orange. And uh, out of the main gate. So, a couple other Marines are out, out there too. One of them is the bugler. Takes the bugle and he throws it up in the air and it bounces on the thing. He says, I won't need that anymore. So I picked it up and put it in my sea bag. Michael's got it. I said, Michael's got it. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So then a couple of guys come out. One somehow has got a bottle of whiskey. So they start drinking and, you know. Then another guy comes out. He sets his sea bag on fire. And the two MPs come from the gate and tell him they grab him by the arm, tell him he's being arrested for making a fire on government property. So I said to the guy with me, we gotta get the hell out of here. We gotta, I gotta get. So the two of us walked about a half mile down the road and finally got a, a green truck and picked us up and took us in and I got home. Yep. So which so. was the first baby? Who was the first baby? Carol. Carol. To Carol. Yeah. And then you guys had six total? Six children. Yeah. Six total. Okay, so tell me, yeah, um, so, and, and how, John is the one you lost, right? I'm sorry? John, John's the one, is, is John, yeah, well, it was John's John funeral, was, right? Yeah. And where, where was he in the, in the order of six? Let's say we had, uh, Carol, uh, Nancy, Michael and John, and okay. then uh, Jenny and Patty. So, yeah, now, um, you almost lost John before that, right? Didn't he get hit by... No, he got, he got caught on fire. Yeah, John... Um, John... Uh, I, I, first one, when I was a kid, I was a, a good uh, tennis player. Uh, we had two tennis courts in town, and um, we used to have a tournament in Seabright, a neighboring town, uh, once a year. It's called the, um, the facility was called Seabright Lawn Lawn Tennis and Cricket Club, and Umsum was a town made up of um, larger states. And um, people with lots of money had big land, big homes there, and they would have servants that lived on their property, and they'd have chauffeurs, have cooks, whatnot. So a lot of the people during the Depression, those people working on the estates, uh, you know, had food and had income and. And the estate owners really weren't affected by the depression. One was one family was named Borden, uh, and they owned uh, cotton plantations down south here. They were busy in that. The others, a lot of them, were active in Wall Street. My father worked as a gardener on one estate, Halsey. Halsey uh, owned racehorses and whatnot. In fact, and. Monmouth Park, which is a uh, racetrack in Monmouth County, New Jersey, um, has a race called the Halsey, or Haskell or Halsey, I forget there's two names, but uh, 
Yeah, we, um, we were, um, you know, after we were, would be okay if my father hadn't died as far as, you know, income. But um, I had um, always played tennis. Um, I don't know where I got the racket. I used to, when we had this tournament at the once a year, and stars of the day, uh, Bitsy Grant, from instance, from here played there. I remember caddying for him. At one time, my picture was on the New York Times, and stand by the, uh, the net. Uh, we used to get paid $2 a day at the tournament. What? And uh, I don't know whether I picked up a racket from that or what, but I used to practice continuously. We had a handball court, and somebody had, had painted a stripe, which was the exact height of the net. And what we always tried to do was hit the ball as close to that line as we can. So I did that forever, you know, just killed time that way, I guess. That was about the only exercise I think I ever had. But John was an excellent tennis player. He had inherited that, I guess, from me. I don't know, but when, when Arizona uh, we lived across the street from what was called the West Side Tennis Club, and they it cost quite a bit to join that, and because they had strict rules on uh, uniforms in those days, they were, everything had to be white, you know. So when I got transferred to Atlanta here, I looked for a neighborhood that had uh, a tennis courts, and one I chose in Stone Mountain. Uh, was because of John. But then John got wrapped up with a couple other kids um, whose first initials happened to be, you know, J, so they were always called the three J's. But it didn't take them long to get involved in um, marijuana, I guess. And so when John was about 16, I found some well, it was a strange thing. I always had a garden. I had this strange-looking plant growing in amongst the okra or whatever it was, and somebody said, oh, that's marijuana. So I didn't realize that John had planted a few <laughs> seeds in that. But anyway, we had some difficulty with them, and I and what problems I had um, never had with Jane was over that. I think I... Mothers uh, make allowances for their children, is the way it should be. And in later years, I, I realized the error of my ways, but I told John that I had two younger kids in the house there, had Janie and had Patty, and we were so, I was so happy with John's tennis ability, but I always made sure he had his own uh, bedroom. Uh, the other kids would double up, but I always made sure I had a bedroom. I remember the Vogue was campaign furniture, which was, um, for that, that period of time, the 70s modernistic was painted um, 
bright colors, and it emulated um, military furniture, I guess, to drive everything. It was called campaign furniture, but made sure he had that. But when I found the marijuana in the room, I told me I didn't want him living there. He was 16, I think, at the time. So he moved in with one of his buddies, and he went to... I always wanted to put all my kids through college. Surprisingly, he was the smartest one of them all. Nancy has, you know, Janie too, well, all got scholarships. So Nancy had a degree in physics, has a degree in math, and uh, Janie had full scholarship at the University of Georgia in biomedical engineering. Michael's an engineer, but I, but John never cracked a book, and uh, always had straight A's. He was just brilliant, but I couldn't handle the uh, marijuana or the dope. So um, anyway, he went so the, the camp tech and became a printer. As he got got older, um, he realized, uh, I guess, the error of his ways, so he met Kelly, who's his widow, and I'm going to see her Saturday on her birthday. We're very close. When he married Kelly, he, he dropped all that. He's, he told me he woke up one morning and said, i got to change. For 26 years, he wouldn't drink smoke or anything. And what happened to poor John was uh, one day Kelly uh, uh, bound to have a uh, malignancy. She had a double mastectomy. That same day the company he had worked for uh, was having financial trouble. He took all the money he had in 401k from not only that place, but two other places, put it in the business, and that was lost, and then the place went bankrupt. bankrupt. So he was faced with three uh, blowers, one right after the other, couldn't handle. So he started drinking again. And uh, well, while we had rented a apartment for him, he divorced Kelly. And uh, he ended up right in the room. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to think of just exactly how that came about. I think we had him, we had him in rehab uh, for periods up to 28 days and whatnot program would be 45 days and he would drop out at 28 days, but we tried very hard, both Jane and I. Jane, Jane used to say, you know, it's killing me, and uh, I think it did. I think that's uh, why she died. But anyway, mm -hmm. prior to that, this is dying in uh, December. In June of that year, he was rented a room from a fellow who had a a um, pressure washing and painting business. John was a very hard worker, and John, pressure washer, 
equipment was in a van and the motor started sputtering uh, running out of gas I suspect but anyway he went in there and put gas in the engine and some of it must have splashed on that hot muffler or something but it uh, caught on fire exploded such an extent that it blew him out of the, uh, the van and uh, put the flames out uh, going on us over and over. It's strange with burn victims, when it first happens they are in shock and they don't feel the pain. But uh, so while he was in the ambulance going to the hospital he called us up and said that he'd been burned. On a Thursday in June, I immediately uh, <clears throat> went down to the church to see Father Harrison. His father's day off and secretary there. Uh, I told him that John was a great moral hospital and I wanted Father to go down and check on him for me. So Father gave up his golf game, went down there. And uh, Father said, came back and said uh, that he had been told that John had four hours to live. He wouldn't, no it wasn't, this was about 4.30 in the afternoon. He said they wouldn't last, live till midnight. That in order to, it's customary Catholic Church uh, called the Last Rites, which is the priest uh, anoints the, the patient and with uh, oil. He said the only thing visible on John was uh, two fingers on his left hand, two toes on his right. He was and burned over 68% of his body. And he never had cases where a person with that kind of uh, damage uh, survives. So, Father told me to prepare myself uh, for it. And uh, I said to him, well, well, we both know only God's got the timetable. Um, I've always been close to the Blessed Mother. In fact, when I went to service on my Irish relatives gave me a uh, miraculous medal which got a picture of the Blessed Mother on it. And I remember her saying to me, keep this around your neck all the time you're gone and you'll, you'll come home alive. So, and I still have that in the car because that's the biggest worry now. <laughs> you're wiped out in the car. But anyway, I went outside and in the Catholic Church, um, it's known that uh, if you um, are sincere and you ask the Blessed Mother for help, but there's never been a case of being turned down. So I just went out and said, I, you know, I mean, and I've done this so many times, you can't, I lose track of the instances where I've said that. And so I said, uh, 
would be like, well, uh, save John. So I never told. Uh, I didn't know what to do. I know what, Jane asked me how he was, and I said, I was severely burned. And so, anyway, uh, midnight came, and he didn't die next day, and he was there for quite a while. I went down there one time and uh, talked to the two doctors that were treating And they said, uh, if you ask us how he survived that explosion, we wouldn't be able to tell you. And I said, well, I know how he survived. And um, they were completely amazed. So, Dr. Lesser, Larry Lesser, who's a cardiac, he's diamonds. He was diagnosed with incurable cancer in, in March, and I saw him in, in August, and now, uh, just two weeks ago, his nurse told me that he's not, he's very close to the end, but anyway. Uh, Dr. Lesser, I don't know how he heard about it, but he sent his son, who's a rabbi, down to see John. <laughs> and uh, I go down to see John. I was going down every day, and John thanks me for sending a nice young priest in. And I, just, I said, what's his name? I said, what's his name? He says, oh, I don't know. He says, Josh. So just then, Father Gratz, who was the chaplain, Catholic chaplain, was coming in to see John. And I'm going out, and I said, "Hey, uh, so we said uh, there was a priest in here. I, oh, I found out. Uh, how we found out? Oh, found out from I think uh, Dr. Friedman, who was a friend." of Masters uh, Friedman was a dermatologist and known him. I got to know them by helping a fellow by the name Isaac Tannenbaum. Isaac um, was at the senior center and I had I did volunteer work as tax time. Late in life, I get a degree. I always loved accounting, so I get a degree in finance from Mercer. But I never didn't have any use for it with the telephone <laughs> with my bell. So I used to do volunteer tax work. I see Isaac down at the senior center, and you know, say hello. Like, in fact, I I used to run there, around there, and I'd see him walking, and he'd be walking with six ladies. And I used to say to him, when I grow up, I want to be just like you, you know, you got six ladies. He was 88 at the time. But anyway, tax time comes, and I see him. I said, how come you not, don't get in line and get your taxes done? He said, now I got, I've got too much money in holdings. He says, uh, I pay a, uh, a H&R block or something. <coughs> I said, well, he said, uh, mine is too complicated. 
I said, listen, I got a master's degree. It's not too complicated for me. I said, I'm, I'm, I'll do it for you and save you, save you the money you're paying H&R Block. So <clears throat> he comes in with a suitcase next day and I, I took, it was mostly dividend income and he had a couple of trusts he had set up and how he wanted to give a house in New York to his son and in those days the IRS would only give, let you give you 10,000 bucks a year to an individual and unless there money you could married you could give 10,000 to their spouse and 10,000 to the, the other spouse and if you when they avoid that, you just filled out a form which meant that when you died, that monies would go back in your estate in case you were subject to estate tax. So I handled all that for him. I didn't realize that he was friendly with, with the Dr. Lesser. Dr. Lesser used to pick him up and take him to the synagogue for Ohio holy days and whatnot. So when it came time for me to need a uh, <coughs> dermatologist, uh, I got to know Friedman. And when it came time to know a uh, <laughs> cardiologist, I got to know Lesser. And Lesser was so appreciative of me helping his buddy that when he heard that John was in the hospital, he sent his son, who's the rabbi, now to, to see him. So anyway, Father Gratz is coming in. I said, Father, we had to call on some additional authority here. We had a rabbi. <laughs> he said, then who is it? And I said, Josh. Oh, Josh Lessie. He said, he serves on a mayor's council for ecumenical or something. Group he saw a bus, bus buddy of mine, so anyway. <laughs> but so John survived that. And uh, then he got back on uh, drinking again uh, right before um, December. And uh, I guess he wasn't thinking straight, he was crossing the on his way to Publix, and he was about this far away from the crosswalk, and he crossed the middle of the road on December 3rd, and a uh, Latino man with this... That was yesterday. Huh? That was yesterday. December 3rd was yesterday. No. No, yesterday no. It was January 3rd. Yeah. I'm so confused. Yeah, no, December 3rd. No, uh, so... I guess... Uh, I, it was to me. It wasn't really unexpected, I guess. But um, for Jane, uh, it was too much for her. Me, the tenth of the night, and I was sleeping. The doorbell rings, and daughter Carol is standing at the door with two policemen, and I knew something was wrong. So. Uh, all they said was your son got hit by a car and was killed, so uh, Jane slumped in this chair here and took her blood pressure and everything and then next day Father Harrison came up and spent a good 
good part of the afternoon talking to her and she felt, um, I thought she had gotten over it, but then <coughs> we had we had the funeral. Um, she slumped in the, uh, uh, in the uh, my uh, John's sister Janie's husband, the fireman in Wilmington, he had broken his leg. He was in the back pew, his leg stretched out. And somehow, when he saw me run up the aisle, cell phones weren't as popular in 2009 like they are now. So I was running up the aisle to get to the office, and the secretary saw me, and she jumped up. And as I was running past up the aisle, I was yelling, anybody have a cell phone? So I wanted to dial 911. So nobody has a cell phone. <laughs> but Walter, uh, was in the back, you know, his legs stretched out. Somehow, he hobbled up to the front of that church, picked up Jane, and was performing CPR on her because firemen in Delaware used to have uh, a emergency EMTs in the same fire station. But to cut costs, they cross-trained the firemen. So Walter had training as an EMT. So he got her uh, her heart going, and by the time um, the county got here, I was so peeled at them. I told them, "Come on, get in, get in there." And she says, "Give us time. We got equipment together or something." You know. she, but anyway, so she died on the way to the hospital. But yeah, it's. Uh, so you guys were married for how long? Since 1945, so... I'll do the I math. I have to think twice. I know, I I, math is not my strong suit either. I think it's 64 years. But you'd known, I mean, okay, so she was how old, she was how old when she died? 87. Yeah, so you'd known her since she was 15. That's, that's just, yeah. that's amazing. Well, you know, it's, uh, as I told you, there's always been somebody that's, comes along uh, that makes, uh, that helps you along the way, at least in my life, and I'm eternally grateful for that. I was, uh, I always did, I was trying to think the other day, uh, Jane always did volunteer work. Uh, even when the kids were small, and we, no matter where we were, she always, she was involved in Little Theater in New Jersey. She was involved in uh, church. We went up to Phoenix, she got involved. And then when she came here, she got involved with, for some reason, with children that had Down syndrome. She said to me, she always felt that they had a special gift that nobody else had. And I'm not sure why, she, but she always felt that they were they were um, different, of course. I've always heard she, that they had a sensitivity, a, a sort of yeah, a, an empathy she, or a, you know, just, yeah. yeah. She always thought that they would, they weren't never capable of hurting anybody, mm -hmm. and they were always capable of, of being kind. Mm -hmm. which, so she got involved with High Hope. Mm -hmm. uh, 
back one day I came home there was a piece of furniture missing in the in the house. I forget exactly where it was. I said, wasn't there a chest of drawers over there? She laughed and she says, it's over at High Hope. They mean. <laughs> but I mean, she was um, always very active in that. And I, so I had Girl Scout troops. Uh, I was, you know, when I came home, I had uh, I was working every hour I could because I didn't want, we couldn't find a place to live. Uh, so we lived with Jane's parents for two years while I used to, and I wasn't making that much money, 69 cents an hour um, as a laborer. And then I, um, I, another guy that came along the way, I was doing my Lunch hour, I was reading a book of the month club selection. We had a new supervisor, followed by the name of Gunnar Pearson. Gunnar was an interesting case. He left at the start of the war. He was a mail boy in the Carney plant, uh, Western Electric Manufacturing Division. We had 13,000 people there working there. He was a mail boy, which was the lowest possible grade that they had. Thank you for spending this time with us. If you enjoyed the content we shared with you, please subscribe, review, and share this show with your friends. Veramore the dating app and Hero Harbor, the social connection tool for heroes, are both in the app stores. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter as Veramore, Veramore underscore app, or Hero Harbor.